0: Continue on through Nehemiah. We're going to be in a few verses here, actually, six of Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. And we're talking about the kingdom lifestyle. That's the theme tonight. Um, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13, oppression had come, and the Jews were making. Um, uh, their own people suffer as they were building the wall in Jerusalem and that Nehemiah was leading. And we're going to see in chapter 6 a different kind of oppression come on them. But in between, uh, those verses are sandwiched these few verses. And so we're going to talk about um, Nehemiah's life as a leader and how he uh, sacrificed and how he lived and how um, he just did things different. Let me ask you guys a question. It might seem a little random, but we'll get it started this way. You ever watch a televangelist, maybe late at night, and you just feel a little uncomfortable? You ever you ever watched preacher on TV and thought, yeah, something what what would make you feel uncomfortable? What kinds of things would they talk about? In many cases, it's that they made it about money, right? That there's always a so, uh, a gift to be sown, a seed to be sown, and, and money, money, money. And it's not that we don't give money. We give money. Um, but when that's half the message, every message, then sometimes it feels like that's a little disproportionate. And then you start to hear about lifestyles, of some of them, and, and, and buying jets and buying planes, doing all these different things. And you think, oh, gosh, it makes you uncomfortable. Why? Because their lifestyle doesn't seem to reflect the gospel. There's something a little bit odd. What about um, when, when you read stories like, Oh, about folks like Mother Teresa. Do you feel a different feeling than when you watch a televangelist? I mean, she was in Calcutta for about 50 years, ministering in the poorest of poorest places amongst kids who had AIDS and all kinds of issues in their lives. Um, what made you feel comfortable was that she has a different lifestyle, one that seems to reflect uh, the God that she believes in. Lifestyle is a big deal. Lifestyle is incredibly touchy even in the church if you think about it we can gather we can worship together we can pray we can obey we can do so many different things um, as a church but then you throw something like this whole building project in we go looking for a building we're going to go find a building and all of a sudden now you've got people who have opinions on things that maybe you'd never heard of before and maybe you don't see this i'm sure you don't see this as much as me Um, but you have conversations and what you find is that every single person makes decisions differently in their families right some people, they want to make quick decisions, and that's how they have done well in business. And other people have done well in business as well, and they say, no, I just go super slow on things. And some people say, you got to take a little risk and get into some debt. And others say, you can't get into debt at all. And some got biblical principles for this and biblical principles for that, but everyone does things different. And a church has to make decisions based on three or 400 different lifestyles, all fitting underneath the gospel in a lot of different ways. But it's just different. And how do you do that? It's difficult. It's difficult. And when we talk about um, wealth in general, and we're going to hit a bunch of different areas of lifestyle uh, tonight, but when you talk about wealth in general, I think a lot of Christians wonder, like, can we be rich? Should we be poor? I mean, think about it. If you think about uh, just riches, God made a lot of people rich. Go through the Bible, you see a whole bunch of people. God made rich. He blessed them with riches. Ecclesiastes teaches us you can enjoy stuff right? Like, you don't have to feel guilty if you got a little money in the bank, and you got a decent house. You got stuff. You can enjoy it. You can enjoy your food and your drink, and you can enjoy stuff. Ecclesiastes teaches us that even though Jesus warns against some parts of being rich, he doesn't straight out condemn it, right? There's sins around poverty and wealth that you got to be aware of. On the flip side, like, what about poverty? Jesus says a lot of good things about those who are poor. Let's them know, man, the kingdom is yours, People who have earthly issues, he lets them know it's not going to be like this forever. And there's a kingdom where things are flipped upside down. And I want you to not find your hope in earthly circumstances and stuff, but in me. That's good. At the same time, I've talked to so many people who are poor, who want help financially, but want nothing to do with Jesus. And so it's not like poverty is a guarantee that they're going to be holy or love God. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, Nehemiah is going to show us uh, what it looks like for someone to be um, so passionate and fearful of the Lord and loving the people around him that his lifestyle is dictated by what God is doing in here. And ultimately, that's the big idea, is it's not a matter of being rich or poor, right? You can be rich, you can be poor. It's a matter of uh, living for God's kingdom, building his kingdom, and letting his kingdom rule in here so that whatever your life looks like out here it's dictated by what God's doing in here. That's a, big, that's a big key for Christians. So, if you remember at the very beginning of this year, Pastor Andy kicked off a series called Made Different to Make a Difference. And we're going to talk about um, six things, one verse at a time, that we are to be different in when it comes to our lifestyle. So let's jump on in. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 14 through 19. He says in verse 14, Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah. So we didn't hear that he was appointed governor. If you go back to chapter 2, he was just asking the king um, to, to go build this wall. But apparently he either went back to the king or uh, somehow, somehow um, he was appointed governor. Which is a lot bigger deal than just being a cupbearer going to build a wall for 50 some days and going back. From the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king, 12 years... So this is long after just building the wall. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. And every 10 days, all kinds of wine in abundance. If this sounds kind of familiar, this is what we read in, um, in, in Ecclesiastes and all that was given to Samuel. And it says he had roebuck and deer and all kinds of stuff, oxen on a daily basis given to him and wine and whatnot. Kings were given allotments, even governors in this case. It's interesting that he's mentioning it and there's a reason for it all. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. All right, six things that you and I, when it comes to our lifestyle and letting God uh, dictate it from the inside out, that we're going to be different in. Number one, we're going to be different in that we have a different worldview, we see things differently. Verse 14, he said, Moreover, now I think it's interesting that he was talking about the oppression um, of the Jewish people that some Jewish officials were taking advantage of those who are poor who are building the wall if you remember from last week Um, and he stops to say i want you to know how i lived because your lifestyle is a testimony right it's easy for us to just talk about the good news of jesus like we could preach it from a street corner we could preach it here we could tell you all day long it's not about health and wealth it's about christ and his unsearchable riches that you can have you can have but people are going to look at how you live. They're curious. And Nehemiah, as a good leader, knows, I'm going to lay it out for you. I'm going to lay it out for you. Um, this is how I live. From the time I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years. So not just a little bit. This wasn't like a summer where I got super religious, and I went to a camp, and they told me, you need to be sold out. For Jesus and then I got pumped but then when I went back for my fall semester I kind of just went back to the way I was living for 12 years this is the testimony neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor so here's the big idea if you're a governor you get a food allowance and it's a lot And you can do a bunch with that. Let me ask you, if any of you have ever ever been working for a company where you went out of town and you got a stipend, anyone ever got a stipend, how do you view that stipend? Because you know there's two ways to view it, right? One is, well, if I'm going to be out of town and I got a hotel stipend and a food stipend and my company's going to give me, I can either enjoy it or I can save it because they're giving it to you either way. What are you going to do with that money, right? And you can do whatever you want with that money. But Nehemiah is saying, listen, They were going to give me this much, but I didn't take it. I didn't take it. I had a different worldview. Because here's the big idea. The government, the Persian government, was giving the governors a certain allotment, but the government wasn't paying for it. Who was paying for it? The people. (laughs) The same people that he just mentioned were being taken advantage of by their own people would be the ones having to pay this. He sees things differently. And so he says, you know what? We could take the allotment, but it wasn't just me as a good leader, me and my brothers. This is how all the people lived. This is how we did things. We see things differently. You see, this world and um, our culture, oh boy, don't we center everything about, around wealth, right? I mean, that's part of the American dream, that you can go out, you can do what you want, you can get yours. Um, we love money because so much of our heart is wrapped up in money. And if you don't believe me, human nature loves money to the extent that whatever circumstance you put us in, we will create our own economy, right? You can watch Castaway, and old Tom Hanks is going to create his own little economy out there. You can go to a prison, you can go to a jail, you're going to find their own little economy. When I was in jail for a couple months, when I first showed up, one of the weirdest things was the world of commissary. Now, if you're unfamiliar with that, it's $20 Kingdoms. Right, um, it's when you go to jail, you obviously get three hots in a cot, right? You get food, but you don't get a bunch of snacks and stuff. you get what they provide, you get deodorant, toothbrush things they provide. But if you want anything above and beyond that, you get an order where I was, it was once a week, commissary. People love commissary, and so what would happen is you would have to have someone on the outside put, and they could only put up to 20 dollars on your commissary tab so that you could purchase things from inside the jail. If you didn't have anyone to put the $20 on or whatever, then you didn't get anything. And people loved it. They thought about it all the time. They gambled their commissary, so you'd have to fill out this form. I want a bag of chips. It's like $7.50. You know, it's all crazy stuff because it's in jail, and jail's (laughs) going to get theirs, right, as well. And so you would get your your snacks and your food and your cookies and whatever, and people hoarded them away. People gambled them when they would play cards. Uh, People stole them from one another. If you go to prisons, you'll find people die over commissary. Like, this is a big deal. People get tattoos. They trade drugs over commissary, over ramen noodles. and and goofy things cookies it happens it happens at first i thought this is weird the saver in me thought i number one i ain't gonna spend seven bucks on a bag of cookies number two can't they see how stupid this is and but they're like like rats centered around this weird prison economy and and they and then they've separated into class systems and some people got lots of stuff and they can store it up and some people got nothing and they're angry and some want to steal from others and some barter with others and and it's weird until about 3 weeks in i'm thinking i want some cookies <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden i start buying some cookies by 2 months by the time they let me out i was walking out of there with a bag full of cookies cost three times more than I need to because I had built up all kinds of stuff that I had purchased within there listen it's a microcosm of our culture it's not twenty dollar kingdoms it's two hundred thousand dollar houses and twenty thousand dollar cars but it's just as stupid and we grew up in it and if you grew up in third world countries you'd think it was crazy some of the stuff we do and what we consider normal in our culture is super weird to a lot of other people And when you follow Jesus, you don't just do what the culture tells you to do. You pull back on everything, you question everything, and you say, God dictates my life. He is the way and the lens through which I view everything. The gospel changes the way I see everything. It filters everything. I don't just go through the motions anymore. I don't just go through the motions anymore. And the reason the world loves money so much is because it's a treasure that has entangled their heart. They find their identity in how much money they have, right? We find our identity in Christ. Even the good jobs out there, firefighters, school teachers, things that you look at as noble, some of those people will hang their heads a bit when they say what they do um, because they know they're not going to get paid a ton. And people are like, wow, that's a big sacrifice for you. I mean that's a sacrifice. Maybe they want to make 30 grand a year. Maybe 20 grand is okay. When I grew up, in my mind, I thought if I could make 30 grand when I get older, I'll be living on high on the hog. And when I was 22 years old and I start a lawn care business, I make 30 grand. And I think, well, I already reached that. And I had to see in my own mind: am I going to just keep going? I could just I could probably make a lot of money doing this. But you got to pull back and say, what? Why? Is that just like the name of the game? You just get as much as you can, regardless of what it costs? I don't want to live that way. I want to pull back and say, man, I might need to change my lifestyle and, and live under my means. I might need to change careers. I might just, I don't care what I need to do. But it better be Jesus telling me and not the world telling me. Because one of them is Lord, and it ain't the world. This is important for us to talk about because we as humans will go with the flow unless we pull back and say, the world isn't my view, but my worldview is Jesus. How do you view money? Is it a tool for God's kingdom or is it your treasure? We have a different worldview. Number two, a different concern. It says in verse 15, the former governors who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. So the concern of most humans is this, myself. (laughs) Because the world will revolve around something. And truthfully, it obviously revolves around God. But how people actually live? Well, we know people can be self-centered. They can live in a way where, where they are concerned primarily with themselves. What is Nehemiah concerned with? Is he concerned with his own desires? You think he wants to eat a little extra meat? He could. He's got this allowance. He could build up wealth while he's doing this. What better way to do God? I mean, he could be doing God's will and build that wall and build a little wealth for himself at the same time, think, this is pretty good to me. This is pretty good to me. But ultimately... He's thinking, I'm concerned, number one, with God, because I fear him. At the end of the day, he's going to hold me accountable for everything I do. And I'm in a position right now where technically, technically, I could enjoy more money than I need. But my conscience is telling me, I don't need it. And if your worldview is that money is your treasure and not a tool for God's kingdom, then you'll just get more treasure compared to leveraging what you have and saying okay I don't I I'm not just here to get more money that's not the totality of my life and number 2 his concern is not just God but the people of God he said the former the former governors they laid heavy burdens on the people they took from them their daily ration of 40 shekels of silver and where did that money come from the people Even their servants. So the people under the top dogs were lording it over the people. But I didn't do so. I didn't do so. He's concerned about God. He's concerned about God's people. You say, listen, Ryan, don't tick me off tonight. Because number one, you ticked me off a lot when you preached on Sunday. Number two, I work hard to make bank. Let me spend it how I want. Well, I'm not your God, so you got to figure that out yourself. Um. But if you find yourself comparing how you spend money to the people around you thinking, I'm doing pretty good, you've got to realize there's a reason he feared God and said that here in that it's not about how good you're doing compared to the person next to you. If they spend all their money on uh, zillions of adult, you know, four-wheelers and boats and whatnot, and you say, well, I'll just get one four-wheeler instead of a four-wheeler and eight boats. I'll just get one four-wheeler and seven boats. I'm doing okay. It doesn't matter. The bottom line is, did God tell you to do that? Are you thinking about how I can leverage my money for his kingdom? If you've got the most amazing fishing ministry in the history of the world, then maybe you need seven boats. But if you just want each of your body parts to be lounging on each <laughs> different yacht, then that might be a different issue. Let me read a passage that will probably tick you off. But this is good. This is hard. Let me preface it by saying this. You and I have freedoms in Christ. You have the freedom to be poor. You have the freedom to be rich. Right? Um, Just like things like alcohol. If you follow the laws of our land, if you don't let alcohol control your mind, if you're not given into drunkenness, things like that, um, then biblically... You can drink. There's all kinds of things that fit into this gray area of like, hmm, can I do this? Can I not? And in Christ, there are freedoms, things that you can do without guilt and condemnation. But there's this passage (laughs) that for someone who wants to build God's kingdom, grips your heart, and you're going to have to wrestle with it. And it's dictated a lot of my life. Um, Let me read it to you. It's in Romans 14. And the issue is that some people thought in the Jewish world, Um, turning into Christian world, that you can't eat certain things, you can't drink certain things, you can't do certain things. And so I'll just read a passage out of it. In Romans 14, verse 13, Paul says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, like who's right, who's wrong, can you eat or can you drink this stuff, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So he's saying, I know I can eat whatever food I want, even if it was sacrificed to idols in the marketplace and sold secondhand and we got it cheaper. But if someone next to me who was a Jew who just started following Jesus is saying, we grew up knowing that was unclean and I'm just having a hard time buying that we can eat that now. then Paul's saying, it's unclean to them. So for what, what's a sin... To one, sometimes isn't a sin because this is part of sanctification. That, that's a oh, I, that's a big concept there. Um, that I yeah. If you have questions about that, we let's talk afterwards. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking by love, but what you eat. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Tara and I, we're we're, we're not drinkers. Um, There's there's no part of me that wants to, to drink, but we know we're in the Bible belt. And our context as missionaries is that people grow up thinking you can't drink alcohol. And we live in that reality. And so for us, it's not much of a sacrifice because we don't really care much about drinking. But we know most uh, tons of people do. But the ones we want to (laughs) reach, it can be a stumbling block. And so we wouldn't drink, even if we wanted to, um, for that. I'm not telling you to drink or not drink. I'm telling you how Tara and I have processed something God has has put on our hearts. Um, But I say this when it comes to your lifestyle as well. It's hard to go minister to a poor person if you're driving up in a BMW. Do you see what I'm saying? If you're driving a luxury car, trying to minister to someone who says, I've had nothing my whole life. How do you think they're going to perceive that? And you say, I got freedom to own that car. And the Bible says, yes, you do. But if you want to be an effective missionary, you might give up some of your freedoms for the bondage that they're in so they don't have to be in bondage anymore. And we have a group of people who've they have freedoms in Christ, but they don't have the heart of missionaries. And they're more concerned with their own self-pleasures that they wouldn't give up that money at the cost of someone else. And they would say, okay, I'll take some of that money. Nehemiah, you just give me some of that money there, even though I know who's paying the bill for it. And if what you do in life makes someone in bondage even more in bondage so you can prove your freedoms correct, that's not the heart of God. Paul says in Romans 14, you're not walking in love anymore. This is a huge. I'd, I probably shouldn't open this one up, but um, but that's a big old deal right there. To say that, boy, that good preaching there. How How would you sum this up, Pastor Ryan? That's just a big old deal right there. <laughs> Have fun with that one. Take notes and pray a lot about it. Number three, a different work ethic. It's one thing that we're different and we have a different work ethic. He says in verse 16, I also persevered in the work on this wall and we acquired no land and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Now, there's two different things when we talk about work ethic. Number one, how he worked and ultimately um, what he worked towards. How he worked is I persevered in the work. So he was working on this wall. Remember, they 52 days, they knocked this thing out. Um, he worked hard. He worked hard. And number two, it says this, that we acquired no land. Now, where do you think the land would have been taken from if they acquired land during this process? He's a governor. There he is. You know the name of the game. It's people who can't pay their debts who gets to take their land. People who foreclose on it. Who's that? The government. He had the right to take that. So he was serving the government as a governor, and his people probably had to look at him kind of weird like, you're the wall builder guy, but you're now the governor because the past governors have taken advantage of us and our own people during the building of the wall were taking advantage of us. Nehemiah, are you going to turn into one of those guys that's going to take from us, your own people? And he said, I acquired no land. He probably had the right to foreclose on a ton of properties because he just told us earlier that he said that the people were selling their own kids into slavery to pay off properties. He said, no, I ain't doing that. I'm not playing that game. So let me just ask you a couple questions before we move on to the next one. Um, what, do you, um, what do you work for? Like, wh- 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 What's your work ethic? I mean, are you a hard worker? And if so, where does that come from? I want the church to be known as hard, hard, hard workers. Because they know that in Christ, they don't have to work at all for their salvation. He did it all on the cross. But because he saves them, we get to work our tails off for his kingdom. So everyone else can know the good news of the free gift that he's given. And God knows our hearts. And I think there's a lot of Christians who say, well, we should just work hard and serve hard. Because that's, that's what we should do. From a religious standpoint. I want it to be gospel-centered. I think that's important. It needs to be because we're compelled by Christ to work hard. But on the other extreme, some of us are hard workers because this is how we were born and raised. Um, And it's part of the American dream that we're chasing is that we want stuff, we want things, and we're working hard towards it. And you can sit next to, you can have one person on your left in church who is a hard worker, one person on your right who's a hard worker, one of them who's offering of hard work is acceptable to the Lord, one of them who's not. You go back to Cain and Abel, you say, why'd God take one and not take the other? Because God knows hearts. And you might look like an awesome Christian dude because you're a hard worker, but if you're working hard just to make bank And God's saying, I want you to work hard because you know you don't have to work for me for salvation. But you get to serve my kingdom well, and you get to be a light in your workplace, and you get to be a testimony to to, uh, the work that God has done on the cross and the hard work he put in. You can do that in your workplace, not to earn my love, but because I freely give it. Just two different worlds. But let me ask you a second question when it comes to work ethic, when it comes to acquiring no land. Is what you're doing for a living good for your community when you go to college or even when you go out and look at newspaper ads and try to find a job, we talked about this a little bit last week with my old fire alarm experience. The world blends job uh, descriptions when it comes to morality, and sometimes you can't tell. Is this good, is it not? You can take a salesman job, that's a really good job, like it can be a moral job. You can take other salesman jobs that are wicked. You could work in a bank setting and be doing a really good thing. You could work at some, some form of a bank setting, quick cash bank type of settings, and not be doing a good thing. You could work for a pregnancy service center and be doing a really good thing. You could work for places that plan for parenthood and not be doing a really good thing. And if you just go by what the culture says, they'll make morality completely muddy. You got to know what's good and what's not. And if you're working a job where in your heart you're like, I don't think I'm helping people. You need to think about that. You need to make sure that you're not... um, Gaining wealth by even unintentionally oppressing others. Number four. A different kind of hospitality. That's what we got. A different kind of hospitality. A radical kind. Verse 17. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. So every governor is going to have a whole bunch of officials, right? And part of being a governor is that you're a host to other officials from all around and people from all over the nations, right? Um, there's going to be people who come in that you are, as a governor, required to be a host to. So Nehemiah is saying, just like other governors, I got, I got tons of people at my table, i got tons of people. The number of people he has at his table isn't necessarily more, but it's not less from any other governor. Even though he's not taking the allowance that he could have had to pay for them all. So he, not necessarily out of his poverty, but not taking the full, the money he could have had, um, he's still hospitable. It doesn't change things for him. He says, I know I'm going to host a bunch of people, but I'm still not going to take the extra allowance. When you look at buying a house, if any of you are in that um, world, uh, you'll hear people often say, well, hospitality, having a dining room, a living room, um, maybe even an extra bedroom, uh, that's going to factor into what kind of house I should buy. As Christians, we need to up the game in hospitality. It's a huge testimony, an opportunity to minister to people. When you think about the gospel and God welcoming all people, race, gender, whatever, into his fold, hospitality ministers in a huge way. And in a world that, as they say, chivalry is dead, people are rude. In the Midwest, we don't necessarily see it as much as you might see it on a coast or a bigger city. But when it comes to everything from traffic jams and, 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 you know, to people walking by, to people welcoming people in their homes, people are more, uh, we question strangers more than ever right? We don't trust anyone. But to be hospitable can be a huge ministry, a huge ministry. Maybe when you go buy a house, um, something like hospitality shouldn't be a factor. Maybe it should be the main factor. Like what if we as Christians looked at something like that and thought, you know what? Here's how the world thinks about their home. The world thinks that it's their secure place. It's their safe zone. It's the place where they can come home at night and get away from the bad guys, where they can be uh, comfortable. And, and even, even if you're a germaphobe, knowing like, oh man, this is the place where, like I know I ain't got to worry about other people's germs and, I, and other people's dirty feet on my carpet and, and, and like even just little things like that that go through your mind. That's how the world thinks. But what does Jesus say about the cost of discipleship in Matthew chapter eight? He says uh, to the scribe who comes up to him and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he turns to him and says, you need to know. Foxes have dens and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Are you really sure you want to follow me? And for us, there's just a little bit of an idol of comfort that can be in the hearts of solid Christians that maybe we realize we ain't so solid if we got. Um, I hope you enjoy your home. You have the privilege to, but that's a tool for the kingdom. Open that stinking thing up. Well, I don't like cleaning for people. Well, then let them live dirty with you. But you got something. You got a tool. I tell it to my farmer friends all the time. People love to be on farms. Some people are live in cities, and just being on a farm can minister to people. Um, but you know, sometimes it's hard to see that when you're in it. But use what you got. Use what you got. Maybe it's not your house. Maybe it's your car. Maybe you give people rides. Maybe it's that you ain't got a car or a house, but you can bring lunch to people at work. You can just be hospitable in a bunch of different ways. I am. Um, this is a big deal. Um, hospitality in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Yesterday, I went out uh, north of town. Tara and Silas and I. One of the families in the church invited us to go for harvest and um, spend an hour or two on a combine and whatnot. And growing up in a small town, obviously everything around us was farming. But I never, I never actually jumped in a combine. And it was, it was exciting. They're mammoths. They are. Um, mammoth machines and there's probably six or eight of these i mean and they're just gps and all kinds of awesomeness and you're just thinking this is amazing when i had my lawn care business we had 44 inch decks on our mowers and these are 44 foot headers and you're just like oh my gosh this is unbelievable i mean like as a kansan you just feel like this is something you should do at least once in your life i was kind of taken back at how much i was moved by the situation because i was like. I mean, that was, that was nuts. And, of course, they had supper in the field and whatnot. But the whole time, as I'm talking and as I'm sitting in that combine and, and I'm hearing about this thing, you've got grain carts coming up, and they don't want to even stop. And they say, whatever we do, we just make sure we never stop. Because we're going, we've got 6,000 acres in 10 days. We're boom, 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 boom. I mean, gung-ho. And as I'm watching this and I'm seeing them just chopping up all this wheat, I'm thinking to myself, man. Being in the middle of this world, hearing them say, and we're just trying to break even, trying not to lose money, deciding do we store it, do we sell it, what's going on around the world. And I'm thinking to myself, what if I told one of these old boys, hey, why don't you save the corners of your field for passerbys? <laughs> like, I mean, that's, that sounds crazy. But in the Old Testament, that's what the Jews were commanded to do. Like, this is the way of Hospitality. That you're just going to have a portion of your field that you know for people who need stuff, they need food, they're going to come. I mean, read the book of Ruth. This is how love is made, Like, right? This is <laughs> threshing floors, and this is where like you can come and you can get stuff. You can get food. You think that would be radical if I told that family that. I'd be scared to tell them that. Now, they're solid people. They'd probably consider it. But when you think about something, even like a hot-button topic, like what's as what's hot-button as you can get? Let's just tackle something weird. How about families being separated on the border? Have you guys heard about that? Is that? <laughs> Obviously, there's, everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's got an article. Which, by the way, as Christians, use your minds. Have common sense, and don't let a plethora of Facebook articles determine how you view something. Go do some research. I'll just say that. I love you. I just don't contribute to the problem. <laughs> There's a lot of unsaid, unspoken, right, and all that. Um, but ultimately, what's the issue? Forget about laws and what's, what, what, what's happening, but you've got families who are, are separated and without getting into all the details, how do, we, how do we solve this thing? Like just some practical stuff. What's the big core issue with immigration as a whole? The big core issue is hospitality. Do we welcome someone? Do we not? Even in the midst of this, this is a microcosm of a bigger immigration issue, but it, it comes down to welcome. And I'm not saying, I, I'm not giving any viewpoint on this, but I, I want you to think about how to actually make an impact. It's a hospitality issue. And in the same way that you see what's happening on the border, whatever community you live in, there's going to be people going to prison whose families are going to probably go to foster care. Their kids, foster care. There's going to be families separated. There's families broken all over the place. Simply, if you start digging into it, you're going to see hospitality a little bit different than maybe ever before. You're going to see it as the primary ministry in 2018. Like so many of the social issues, if we have gospel hospitality, if we reorient our lives, our houses, why do we buy a house? What kind of car are we going to have to think about? How can we serve other people? Hospitality could start revival in our culture. It's at the core of a bunch of our social issues. People need gospel hospitality. It's a radical kind. Nehemiah, he's hospitable no matter what. And he's thinking hospitality, regardless of how much money, a different kind of, he's still taking care of people. Number five, a different kind of sacrifice, a different kind of sacrifice. We were made different to make a difference, and this is one way we live different. Verse 18, now, what was prepared at my expense, in case you guys are wondering, for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. When it comes to sacrificing, every single day, There's little decisions that you got to make. And again, it goes back to what I said in point number two or three and who does the world revolve around, you or someone else? Take something small and look at your disposition towards it. You go and get some, uh, you order a pizza, right? You order a pizza over the phone. One of you, you or your spouse, whatever friend, goes, picks it up, gets home, finds out it was not the way it was supposed to be. You got a decision. And this is, again, a microcosm of tons of decisions you have to make. Someone's going to sacrifice. Someone is going to sacrifice. You can either make them sacrifice knowing full well if you take that pizza back, they will throw it away. They will trash it. I don't know that they can give it to anyone. Like it's, well, I'm sure there's rules for that kind of thing. And they're going to make you another one. And they're not going to make as much money. They're going to sacrifice. Or... You eat it and you sacrifice because you paid money for something and you didn't get what you wanted. Let me ask you, where does your mind go? Does your mind immediately think they're going to sacrifice for me? Or does your mind say, I will sacrifice for them? Someone got wronged. Someone has to pay a price. This divides families because if you get a wrong order, one of you is saying, call them up. The other one is saying, don't say anything. And I don't want to base your salvation on how you view calling up a pizza place. But I want you to stop and think about it. Are you asking the world around you to sacrifice constantly for you, even if they've done you wrong? Or are you looking at how you can sacrifice for the people around you? Not get walked on, but recognize... Ultimately, there's a bigger sacrifice that I rest in. And any of my sacrifices ain't even going to compare to it, but I hope that it does reflect it. Here's a few different things that you can pull from this when it comes to uh, sacrifice. Number one, the government. I mean, he represents the government. So what he's ultimately saying here because of this, because the service was too heavy on this people, we did things differently. It's good to be part of a government that serves the people. (laughs) I'll just leave that there. They do what's best for the people because they are working for the people. His leadership, he shows this. Good leaders empathize with those that they're serving. We all, if you're in leadership of any kind, you know there's things you can ask, burdens that you put on the people who work for you, and you've got to decide what burdens are worth putting on them and what aren't. He's asking them to build a wall. They're already sacrificing like crazy. And he's saying, I'm going to take this off their plate, that they don't have to worry about it. Good leaders recognize how far to push people and recognize it's best to empathize with people and you've got to make decisions based on on that. Even if it means you take the sacrifice. Sometimes you can make them work late. Sometimes you just need to be the one to work late and let them go home to see their family. But ultimately, the gospel, a bigger sacrifice. Nehemiah's pointing to something incredibly beautiful. He comes down and says, someone's got to pay the price. Who's going to pay the price? Either I pay the price, and I am in a position that I didn't deserve, because I'm the governor, I'm the big dog. So either I lower myself, and not take as much as I need, or should, or the people pay the price. Does this sound familiar? This is Christ, this is us. This is our sin. This is him coming and dying on the cross, and choosing sacrifice himself, so that we, even though deserve death because of our sin, don't have to pay the price for our own sins. It's beautiful. Kingdom lifestyles serve others. We think about giving time, our energy, and we recognize it's a personal sacrifice. Let me ask you, when you go through your day, um, do you dread service opportunities or do you actually pray for them? Even in the evangelical church, we can get burned out on serving and sacrificing. That's why you gotta preach the gospel to yourself all the time, remembering the sacrifice of Christ. Remembering, you um, You're not serving other people out of guilt. You're serving other people out of uh, grace, thankfulness for what Christ has done for you and ultimately wanting to show them through your sacrifice, a greater sacrifice. We see through Nehemiah's sacrifice, a greater sacrifice. Last but not least, we got a different reward. Got a different reward. How many times in Jesus' ministry uh, does he say to those who fast fast, Um, uh, publicly and make it known that they're fasting or to those who are praying fancy prayers he says your reward is already here is what you got someone claps and says you're amazing enjoy it bro because you ain't getting nothing in In secret if you're trying to please man you're going to get whatever man can give you but if you do things in secret and you want to serve God you're going to have a reward that you can't see right now but it's a heavenly one it's going to be awesome what is the world's reward In our culture, the pinnacle of the reward for the working man is retirement, right? Work, work, work. Get as much money as you can so that you can retire as early as you can, so that you can stop serving and sacrificing so much. Does this sound contrary to the way that we live? As Christians, like, we should be looking for ways. How can I serve? How can I sacrifice? Use me up, God, because I'm going to die. When I get to heaven, I don't want to be like, wow, it's basically like I just woke up from a 40-year evangelical nap. I could have been serving you, but I was sleeping on my pew. No, I want to be like, I was worn out. I am ticked at half those people down there because I've invested so much in them, and they're just crazy. But I was teaching them the gospel, and I'm worn out because I was giving them money, more money than I thought I should be given and could give, but I gave it anyway. And I was worn out because I served more than I ever thought I could serve, but I'm tired, and I need a nap. I want to show up to heaven worn out for the sake of the gospel. our reward isn't on earth unless you make it that way cuz you flaunt your faith our reward is in heaven and the bible says that you got a king and you got a crown and the king we get right now he rules cuz he's the lord of lords and king of kings and the crown as first peter 5 tells us is coming there's going to be a feast and there's a place for you at the table and it's going to be awesome you might not get it down here on earth. And even if you do get it, it ain't going to compare nothing. It ain't going to compare at all to the one that we got in heaven. And so when you live a different way, when you live in an upside-down kingdom, you've got to recognize that the reward is still coming. And you got to have your eyes on that. He says, remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. And the Lord will. As we wrap this up, let's talk a bit about the trajectory of Jesus' life when we talk about poor and rich. I mentioned this at the beginning. We talked about a lot of parts of lifestyle, but let's, let's revisit it before we send out. Um, the trajectory of his life was that he, being rich in heaven, as we see in Philippians 2, um, even the incarnation, him becoming man, is a, an act of poverty. Right? He gave up heavenly riches to come here his life, he was born in a manger, right? Um, When they sacrificed uh, a few days into his life at the temple, he gave pigeons, not a lamb. Pigeons were for poor people. His family um, probably was not terribly wealthy, right? And so ultimately, he dying on a cross, and before that, living on um, not much, because in his three-year ministry, he is having ladies um, provide for him and the people who are going with him provide for him out of their means, it says. Um, he didn't have a ton. I mean, think about it. He borrowed um, he borrowed boats to preach from. Jesus borrowed food to multiply. He borrowed a uh, colt to ride in on. He borrowed a tomb to be buried in. The dude was pretty poor. But God has exalted him above all, and everything is beneath him. And he has riches that are unlike anything else in this world. Jesus was poor, but he, no doubt about it, was rich. And so your life reflects being poor in spirit and then coming to faith in Christ, recognizing that ultimately we're going to voluntarily give up things on earth. We're going to give up time. We're going to give up energy. We might give up our social status. We might give up job titles. We might give up stuff so that we can reach other people because ultimately we know our reward is in heaven. It's in heaven. We reflect 2 Corinthians 8-9. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become Rich. I'm going to rifle off five quick truths for you, and then I'll send you out. Here's five lifestyle truths that we see from Scripture as a whole. These are not necessarily related to Nehemiah, but just to sum up a huge topic that we obviously can't do justice in one night. But number one, when you think about being rich or poor, let Jesus dictate it. Don't have a love for money, Don't just do what the culture tells you to. If Jesus tells you to take a certain job, you take that job. If that job happens to make you rich, great. If that job doesn't, then you stay content with whatever you got. Let Jesus dictate your wealth. Don't struggle with the tension of, I want more, I want more, I want more. If he provides a job that puts you in a trailer park, that's the most you'll ever have. You enjoy that trailer park. If you don't ever get a car of your own, that that's what he has for you. Enjoy walking. Enjoy the bus. But don't feel like because everyone around you says go 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 go, raise 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 that you got to do that Jesus needs to be the one cuz he's Lord to dictate your wealth, not you. And if you don't believe me, some of us are in rough life positions cuz we tried to dictate that part of our life. Number 2, and don't love either one more than Jesus. Right now, that's the conversation. Voluntary poverty. All Christians need to be poor. Hate the rich people. Love the rich people. It's rich, poor. The issue isn't rich, poor. The issue is we shouldn't love our lifestyle more than the giver of life. It's about Jesus. Number three, don't condemn either more than Jesus. Jesus didn't condemn poor or rich. He warned he warned about the sins surrounding both of them. But it's not inherently good to be one and inherently bad to be the other. So don't, don't be the, the, the guy who doesn't have much money saying all the guys who got money are horrible. And don't be the one with a bunch of money saying, oh, you know how poor people live, it's different. Don't condemn them, don't dictate their narrative, love them, love them. Number four, position yourself to minister to both. If you find yourself, especially in in Kansas, in Salina, most of us, regardless of how much money you make, find ourselves in a position where we can make friends with both sides. Um, Don't pit them against each other, but recognize the rich need to go to heaven, the poor need to go to heaven, and the middle class definitely need to go to heaven. (laughs) Last but not least, when it comes to the way you view your lifestyle and wealth, Recognize it's a tool, and the kingdom of God is your treasure. Make sure you're seeking the kingdom of God, not wealth. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray for us. Um, Lord, every one of us has attention when it comes to our careers, when it comes to how much money we should make, how much money we think we need to make, what to do with that money. God, we all feel the pull between serving your kingdom and and building our own. I just pray that we would have such a love and a passion for your kingdom, that we would seek your kingdom first, that, Lord, any needs that we have in life would be met by you, and we know you promised that. But, God, help us to not confuse needs and wants. Help us to be content with everything you give. Help us to live in an upside-down world, recognizing we live in an upside-down kingdom, and it's reverse. It's different than the way this world works. Help us to live in a way that people look at us and say, I see your sacrifice. Where does it come from? I see your service. Why would you do it? I see your lifestyle. Don't you want more? So that we can tell them we do it because of you and we got more than they'll ever realize unless they want this Jesus to. Help us to share Jesus, to tell, to proclaim, to live like Jesus, to find life in Jesus. Help us to Help us to get so wrapped up in you uh, that we're not entangled by the things of this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.